Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery and General Podcast. Uh, first, before we begin, I want to apologize that it's been a couple weeks since um, I released an episode. I tried to do it for, you know, every week consistently, but I guess I almost made it to episode 200, so not too bad, I guess. Uh, just wanting to let everyone know... I hope I'm not going to start pod fading. It's just that my day job, they've been piling on the overtime, which has left me kind of exhausted and not always have the time to or energy to uh, schedule podcasting time with my various friends and uh, colleagues. But anyways, that is neither here nor there. But so today, can I ask you a question? Of course. Friends, and co- how come you don't do podcasts with your mortal enemies? I guess I don't really do podcasts with my mortal enemies because if I brought them into my house, they would probably want to kill me and I would probably want to kill them too. They would go Super Saiyan and then you would go Super Saiyan and then the whole house would explode and your hair would stand straight up. And they then might, like, you know, the lines in the air, like, you know. They might go Super Saiyan. I will go Bruce Lee on them. It's over 9,000. Bruce Lee is immeasurable. But anyways, okay. You know, I bet you thought I would probably say I would go Chuck Norris on them, but, you know, Bruce Lee is much more awesome than Chuck Norris. I mean, you know how everyone... Go ahead. Lemmy's more awesome than Chuck Norris. (laughs) Death didn't come to get Lemmy. Lemmy searched him out. (laughs) Well, you know what? It's like they say that, you know, there's all these Chuck Norris jokes out there like... You know, uh, at night, the boogeyman checks under his bed for Chuck Norris, or there's another one, um, you know, Chuck Norris doesn't do push-ups, he pushes the earth from under him. Did you ever wonder why there's no Bruce Lee jokes? Because Bruce Lee's not a joke. Exactly. Well, for my co-host for today's episode, he is a man who needs no introduction, because you probably recognize him by that. That sweet, sexy voice of his, Dan from Radio Free Borderlands. We're building a fighting force of extraordinary magnitude. <laughs> we we are, have our gratitude. We are fortunate tradition, uh, or no, how did that go? Uh, Doctor, whatever, we, he, let's all give him a hand. And then he, Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, Kentucky, Kentucky Fried I, movie. But you don't understand, Kim. You could kill upwards of 50, 60 men. Oh, yeah. You could kill 50, maybe 60 people. Oh, yeah. I'd have to say A Fistful of Yen is probably the best segment in that entire movie. Um, So if any of you out there, if you haven't seen Kentucky Fried Movie, definitely recommend it. There is quite a bit. Don't watch it in front of the kids. Yes, don't watch it with the kids. There is nudity in it. Uh, Just most, you know, just topless women, so nothing really big, and there's one soft course porn scene in there, but still, the Fistful of Yen segment is really funny. It's really good. But... I think my favorite part is when he's fighting the big dude, and he thinks he's going to take him out by picking up a transmission and throwing it on top of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but... It cuts off the guy's head. No, torture him! <laughs> oh, yeah, then the, the other part's like, take him to... Or no, with one of the spies, he's like, "You can't, you can't frighten me." And then he says some, you know, racist slurs. He's Take like, him to Detroit. No, no, not Detroit. 
They made fun of Detroit throughout that whole movie. Yes. <laughs> but anyways, before we break into another, uh, before we quote a Kentucky Fried movie again, let's go into today's topic. Welcome to Bone Thrower's Theater. Nah, it's not that kind of show. It's an RPG actual play podcast. My name is Jordan, and I'm joined by our fun-loving cast. This is Aaron. Jeff here. Johnny is my name. And I'm Jeremy. And what we do is dive in and play various tabletop RPG systems and games, such as Mini 6, Fiasco, Inspectors, Monster of the Week, Fate, and more. But no matter the rule set or setting, some pretty intense storytelling hits the fan. So whether you like epic fantasy, adventure, comedy, sci-fi, horror, or just horrifically bad puns, we've got something to feast your imagination on. Listen to our full episodes and more at BoneThrowersTheater.com. And may the bones fall ever in your favor. Take any long-running video game franchise... And chances are there will be one game in the series that is iconic. And some might even yeah. say that game is a masterpiece. It is, it's the one that stands out amongst all, all the rest. Right, exactly. And it's usually it's a game that receives universally positive reviews. Or it does something groundbreaking. Or perhaps it takes the series in a new direction. Or maybe the game is just really, really, really fun. and Like the pinnacle of all things Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy VI. Exactly. Though I know there are definitely plenty of people who would fight you and say that Final Fantasy VII is the pinnacle of the hey, series. Hey, they're allowed to be wrong. <laughs> well, we're, we're not going to get into the argument of six versus seven right now. Um, I mean, haven't really... We don't need to. We know we're right. <laughs> but Sorry. we're going to be talking about a game series that I'm a pretty big fan of. I know there's a couple games in this series that you like, but it's not one of your favorite franchises. But there is one game in the series that both mm-hmm. of us can agree is really, really awesome. And not only can we agree that this game is really awesome, but a lot of video game fans and reviewers also agree that this game is really, really awesome. And that is Castlevania Symphony of the Night. So how did you first learn about this game? Because I actually remember seeing... Actually, I don't remember if it was you or another friend of ours, Gino, that I... Uh, learned about this game from. I remember seeing it was either you or him playing this game for the first time. So how did you get into Symphony of the Night? Uh, it was actually, there's a there's a good story here, and, and I got to be able to tell it. Uh, when the Sony PlayStation first came out, my, my brother was set on getting one because he heard the Final Fantasy series was moving there. Um, so he went to Funko Land, which is one of the the companies that eventually became what we now know as know as uh, the Evil Empire GameStop and for all of his Sega Genesis games and parts and the system itself he received enough money to get his PlayStation 1 now, I'm going to tell you this for the record, just as, just as an aside, he is kicking himself right now. He is absolutely livid. He wishes he could go back and not do that because he had 
um, probably the best RPG for the Sega Genesis called Crusader of Senti, which is a $600 game now. Wow. Yeah. So he it was one of the first he had. And on one of the weekends that I came back from 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 college, he was playing it and I just tried it out a little bit. So now that's where I first saw that game. Now, were you really into the fi- the Castlevania series? I almost said Final Fantasy for, for some reason. That's okay. Were you okay. were you all, um, were you really into the Castlevania series before Symphony of the Night? Because by the time Symphony of the Night was released, because uh, of course we had the classic ones on the NES, Castlevania one, two, and three. We had the really awesome. Castlevania 4 on the Super Nintendo. There were a couple of Game Boy games that were released at this time. I don't recall if the N4 was out at this time or... No, the PlayStation came out first. Okay, so yeah, the... Yeah, so that's right. Yeah, the uh, the 3D games on this the N64, whatever, came afterwards, which... And from what yeah. I've heard, those games were pretty much universally panned, so... Uh, Castlevania. There were a couple on the Genesis. I oh, eventually yes. picked up a copy of Castlevania Bloodlines on the Genesis when I got one. Yes, that's we had uh, also had uh, Bloodlines, and I think also at the time because I don't think. Uh... Oh yeah, we also had Rondo of Blood that was uh, released in Japan, and then that was later ported to the Super Nintendo as Dracula X, and. Mm-hmm. Those were, and I think there were a couple other ones that were released in just Japan um, that uh, we didn't get, you know, or they may have been released in other regions. So still, by at this time that Symphony of the Night was released, you know, all the games so far had pretty much been your side-scrolling platformers, which mm-hmm. I'd have to say I'm really glad that they did Castlevania Symphony of the Night as a... As a, as a side-scrolling platformer, because this is a topic I've wanted to co- to cover for a long time, but I just haven't had the the time or motivation to explore it. And that is, uh, we're at this point in video game history where we start to see more video game franchises going from second or from two D to three D, and mm-hmm. some of those games did make the transition rather successfully. Uh, Super Mario 64 is a good example. Uh, other games like the, well, again, it was wouldn't be till a little later, but the uh, Castlevania games on the N64, they didn't quite make the transition as smoothly. So I think Symphony of the Night was at that unique time where you were, developers were starting to get these more powerful systems, and there was that temptation to try to take it into 3D, but they kept it in the 2d style and i think that uh i think the game was much better off for that but unlike some of those older castlevania games this one had i I hate to use this term but it it does kind of fit almost a sandbox feel you didn't have to go through at certain certain parts at certain times to win the game you could go any place in the castle if you can access it exactly and we're going to get into that later on we're going to be getting into that style of gameplay which some people call castleroid others call metvania and that's because symphony of the night drew a lot of influence from or at least 
you know, the, the gameplay influence from another well-known series, Metroid. One of my very favorite games of all time, Super Metroid. Yep. And that's another one of those games where we talk about franchises, though unfortunately Metroid really hasn't done much lately. Uh, I think, because I know they had a couple of games that they released on the, uh, for the Wii, and then there have been a few on the portables, but, you know, but other than that, I had, don't think they've any, done anything new with Metroid for a while. But, yeah. There's a reason. Okay. Oh, yeah. Wasn't there oh. something with, like, one of the lead developers had died? Yeah. Uh, uh, long story short, the the producer of the original Metroid was a guy named Gunpei, Gunpei Yokoi. And it was his uh, – the whole idea of the game that was kind of his brainchild. And he produced Metroid and then Metroid 2 on the on the Game, game Boy and then Super Metroid. Um he is also the one who gave us the uh, much, much maligned uh, Virtual Boy. And that thing was such a spectacular failure from what I've heard. He he quit the company because of it, because he was so ashamed. He ended up passing away shortly afterwards. And I guess what I had heard from a couple of different people was that out of respect for Mr. Yokoi, he, uh, they, they put the Metroid series on ice for a long time. So it wasn't until the GameCube when Metroid Prime came out, I believe, that's when they kind of started bringing it back. Yeah, and I can, I, to, to an extent, I can certainly understand that because if you do have someone that was so heavily involved in a project where mm-hmm. it became their baby, yeah, you, you know, I could see how they might be hesitant to create new games for it just out of respect for the guy. So, yeah. Yeah, the uh, Super Castlevania, though, that's one of those games that if we take a look at the Metroid series, uh, that's probably the iconic game in that one because, I mean, it took a lot of what we loved about the original Metroid and kicked it up a notch. Like, one of the things that I always liked about, uh, you know, the Castle, about, not Castlevania, sorry, um, Metroid. Super Metroid? Yeah, the, the rat in the maze type feel where... Yeah, the game begs you to come back to certain areas, and you you see that in Symphony of the Night as well, uh, where when you have this open sandbox type feel for a game, you know you might you know a few rooms into the game you well let's just use Castlevania Symphony of the Night as an example when you get a couple of rooms in there's that first room where all those fishmen are jumping out of the water at you. Oh my god, that is a really good place to gain experience. Yep. And at the beginning. You see that there's this hole in the ceiling and you at the start of the game you have no way to reach it. So mm-hmm. it kind of puts that little mental note in the back of your head that okay, maybe I might want to come back here when I find out how to jump higher. Or, you know, when I when you find out how to turn into a bat or turn into mist. I forgot which one you get first, but it, it basically increases. Mist is first, but you can't you can't access mist for a long period of time until you get something that requires you to get the bat. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. In the library, it, it's been a while since I played the game, but I, I played the hell out of it. So I just it's ingrained in my brain at this point. Both of these games are. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, with Metroid, 
it, it said you felt like a, a rat in a maze. And uh, another fun fact, uh, one of the, there was a movie that was supposedly had some influence on Metroid and that was Alien because you were supposed to have this feeling of isolation when you were playing Metroid because no one was on your side in those games. And, you know, there was no one, well, at least in the first one, basically anything you saw wanted to try to kill you. Now, mm-hmm. of course, in Met- in Super Metroid, you had those other little aliens that would show you how to do a wall jump or do some other thing, and but those are the closest... And- well, you also there were some of the chozos who helped you, but also, but at the same time, some of the chozos tried to kill you. Yep. So those those were so Metroid formed the basis of this whole open sand, well, semi-open sandbox feel where you had to do a lot of exploration. And I would say, I would I would almost say that it even goes back a little further with Legend of Zelda, because yeah. I mean I know. I'm pretty sure Zelda came out before Metroid, because uh, I know they were both pretty early in the NES's history. But they do share that theme of exploration. Like I, I think Metroid may have come out first, and the only reason I'm thinking that is because of the fact that the original Metroid forced those freaking passwords on us. Where by the time Legend of Zelda came out, they had the capabilities for the battery. The, the battery pack within the cartridge. Okay, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right on that. Um, though, I thought Japan, in the version that they got, they did have a battery feature, and they were thinking of bringing it over to the U.S., but yeah, we got stuck with the passwords instead. But yeah, I, I know what yeah, you're yeah. saying. So those, So those two games had that exploration behind them, where a lot of it was like, okay, I see trying to think of it a good example well you get to a certain point in uh zelda where you go you know where the the first maze is and you go above that and then you go to the west a little bit and there's this river that you can't cross so it makes you wonder okay how am i going to cross that and then of course later on you get the ladder and it's like oh now i can go explore that part of the world so it again it very gradually opens up the world to you uh, so that's one of the things. It, oh, go ahead. It, that's actually as one of the things about a lot of these games that I think appealed to me the most was this idea of being able to explore and chart new territory. Well, it was new to us anyway. Territory. It's the same with like the first time I played uh, the original Final Fantasy or Dragon Warrior. You know, Dragon Warrior felt a lot like this. This this explore. Ex- exploring this world and if you just went a little bit too far you were going to run into something that could kill you in one hit (laughs) exactly now when we look at castlevania so okay metroid inspired a lot of the the style not really the i'm trying to think because i said i i guess you can say there's a difference between style and presentation so i'm going to say that metroid probably influenced the style but castlevania did the presentation because we look at the Castlevania games that were released back then. Uh, like you take a look at the first one and then part of the third one, you're in a castle. So the backgrounds, you know, you're going to have very Gothic uh, scenery. And one of the things that I liked so much about Castlevania Symphony of the Night is how detailed a lot of the backgrounds were. 
where you almost wish you could kind of go in the background and explore some of that. A good example for me would be the library. I love that part of the game. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you remember um, in the Marble Gallery, there's this really long, long hall takes you to the outside outer wall. Yep. And in there, there are those monsters that are like the lizards with the woman's body on the top of them. Oh, yeah. If if you're in there enough and you watch the background, there's like, I think it's in this room. If it's not, it, I, I'm sure you'll remember where it really is. There's like this giant eyeball or something that's like hiding shows up as it's floating back, back, back there. And it's like, what is that? Exactly. And that's just one of those things. It might seem like a minor detail, but it's it's more awesome it's better than if they just had something static back there and there's other Mm -hmm. little parts too like when you get to the outer wall you go to the bottom part of it and there's that bird's nest and you know you stay there and you watch it long enough you know a bird comes in it lays eggs and then it flies off and then little birds fly off and i think there's a couple of parts where you can see like mice running around there are in the outer wall and in the um, the cathedral. Yeah, and then also the other part in uh, Onyx's lair. You've got that one part where uh, there's these cells in the background, and occasionally, you know, some zombie-like guy will come up to the cages, rattle the bars, turn around, and go back. So. Oh, yeah. I really like those little touches because it makes the castle feel more like an entity. And not only that, it does, some of it does add to the creepiness aspect of it. Like you mentioned that long hallway in Marble Gallery where you've got that weird eye floating in the background. You don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, first time playing it, you're like, okay, am I going to have to fight that sooner or later? And, you know, of course, you never get to. Um, and then again. And then- Oh, sorry. And then, like again, those guys in Onyx's lair in the uh, in the the prison cells. That's another yeah. good example where it kind of catches you off guard the first time it happens. Do you know that in the in 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 the in the Olorox chamber, when you go to fight him before the battle starts, you, you can actually go and sit uh, on on the on the chair opposite to him. I never tried that. You can. Um, did you ever try to sit down in one of the chairs in the confessional? Yes, I did. Uh, so- okay. See, that's another cool one where all of a sudden you start seeing these ghosts. You sit down, and if sometimes you'll get the ones that the the ghosts come in, and they do their 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 sobbing confession, and other times they'll show up, they'll close the curtain, and then all of a sudden all of these weapons are trying to stab <laughs> at you. And yeah, and there's I know there's a couple other chairs. Uh, I think in the I forgot what part of it is, but, you know, there's just some area where there's a chair in the background. You can go and you can sit down. It doesn't do anything, but it's kind of a cute little touch. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I really like how even though it did have this new style of feel, this new style of play that differed so much from the Castlevania games we've seen before, it still felt like Castlevania. And... Mm -hmm. Because before this, you know, and you talked a little bit about this before, with, let's see, just looking at the list, most of these games, yeah, they were stage to stage to stage with a couple of exceptions. The uh, main one being Simon's Quest, where it, well, actually, Simon's Quest did have that open world feel to it. So, yeah, I 
don't believe we forgot about that, where you did have this world to explore, but it could still be kind of hard to navigate through. Yeah. And then in the case of uh, Dracula's Curse, the nice thing about that one is you could actually choose which path you wanted to take to the castle, and that was significant because that determined who you would uh, meet along the way, including the main character of this game, Alucard. Um, yeah, it was Alucard, Sif, and... Um, Brant. Yeah. Yep, who also make appearances in Symphony of the Night as well. And uh, well, the f- and Rondo of Blood did the same thing too, yeah. where there was uh, there was a place where, in the first stage, where depending on which route you took, that determined which route you would go through the game. But there weren't as many branches as there were in that game as there was in Castlevania Three. Mm-hmm. So you take this open world feel that um, from Castlevania 2, you know, and Metroid, and also Metroid, you kind of take that whole uh, exploration and that rat in a maze type feel, and Mm -hmm. you combine those with the style of Castlevania, and we get Symphony of the Night. So, I would have to say, one of the things that really, I think, drove the game was the plot and how there were other people in the castle that you interacted with. It wasn't just, you know, okay, well, in the case of most of the games up to this point, you pretty much just walk to the other side of the stage and kill everything that moves. Now, granted, mm-hmm. Simon's Quest had an interaction in the villages, um, and then occasionally you saw the hooded men that sold just stuff, but, you know, the, these the, most of these characters didn't really have their own personality. So in addition to our main hero, Alucard, we also met up with Richter, as well as uh, Maria, Maria. Uh, Shaft, the librarian, and of course Dracula. Oh yeah, and the succubus. So they all and the fairy. What's that? The ferryman. Oh yes, and the ferryman. Um, oh yes, I'll take you to somewhere safe. <laughs> Did you mention death? Oh yes, death too. <laughs> yeah. So well, you know, of course, the only ones you get to fight would be. Dracula, well, Succubus, Dracula, uh, the Reaper, and you sort of fight Richter. Yes, sort you of do fight Richter. Um, actually, in the Japanese version and the version of Symphony of the Night, that's uh, East. It's not really an Easter egg, but you can unlock it in the PSP game, um, the Dracula X Chronicles. You get the Japanese version where you have the ability. Do you remember you go down into that that place with the pentagrams and everything, and then Maria talks to you, and she's like, you know, you were right about Richter this whole time, and she gives you the glasses, yes. right? Right. You're in the Japanese version. You're supposed to fight her for them. Hmm. And in the PSP version, you get to do that fight, and she, she's tough. She's tougher than Richter, probably. Yeah, and I think it was the version for the Sega Saturn. You actually can get. There is a version where you can play as Maria. So that is a version of the game I would love to be able to play one of these days. Um, Yeah, I know that if you would have punched in Richter as your name in the PlayStation version, you would play in the castle as Richter, but you could only get so far. You know, you can beat the game with Richter. 
Oh yeah, it's hard. I never, I never tried that hard. Because I mean, if yeah, that's because well, you're stuck with that stupid whip. Yeah, and that's the thing is where, and this is actually a trend we started to see as the uh, game progressed because in a lot of the um, you know the the Metvania or Castleroid style games that followed in the series, they would often introduce a a new mode where after you beat the game with the main character, you can try doing the the game as another character. A good example would be uh, one of the Game Boy Advance ones, uh, Harmony of Distance. In that one, you're playing as I think he's uh, Simon's grandson, Juiced, and you have a an ally in that game uh, that you end up having to fight. Uh, Maxim, I think, is his name. But, anyways, yeah, Maxim. After you beat the game, you do have the option to play as him, and then, of course, it's okay. a whole different game because you don't get to use items, and it feels more like an older style Castlevania game. See, half the fun for me was the items. Now, the thing is, is for Super Metroid, you were surprisingly limited in the items, but what it made up for it was the fact that you had to go and you had to search for ammo. Oh, yeah. You know, when you got the Super Bombs, you only had five, and you would only ever get five until you got another little container for five more. And part of the fun then was trying to search out how how many of them you could get, and Knowing the limit, like you, you, there were only this many missiles, this many super missiles, this many uh, uh, mega bombs. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then the idea was to try to collect 100% of items where if you beat that game at the very end after the credits, it told you um, your rate for collecting items. So if you missed a few, you might be that would encourage replay value because you might be like, OK, now I got to try to go back and. Uh, I want to try to, uh, you know, I got to go back and I got to, I want to try to see if I can get the, you know, the 10 or 15 bombs that I didn't collect the first time around. Yeah. There's also, you know, you could also go back and try to explore every possible thing and get the entirety of the map and find every one of the special. I mean, if you get 100% of the items, you're going to have the whole map. Exactly. And, um, and then as with the first Metroid game, um, there was still the if you beat this game within X amount of time, the ending changes a little bit. So it's in this one, it's three hours. If you can beat Super Metroid in under three hours. Um, so there are people who are like, can you do it in three hours? I, I've beaten the game in under three hours with 100 percent of the items and 100 percent of the map. I don't know if I should be bragging about that or not. <laughs> Well, there's nothing wrong with that. And, uh, I, I mean, speed running is something that, you know, it's pretty fairly popular on YouTube and it does give a new challenge to the game. Cause, uh, like with Symphony of the Night, there are people who can supposedly beat it in like 15, 20 minutes, but then again, they also take advantage of glitches. Uh, now, mm-hmm. but then again, you look at there's some games like Super Mario Brothers where you're trying to beat it without glitches and, I mean, talk about a game that still has lasting appeal. Uh, I think the world record for beating the game is like just under four or just under five minutes. 
Um, wait. You have to skip a lot of stuff. You're basically running f- through the first two worlds, going to the warp to four, running through those, going to eight. I mean, that, that's got to be tough. Yeah, and then there was one person who actually uh, beat the game with the minimal amount of points possible. Uh, so again, not only do you have to avoid everything when you get to the the uh, when you get to the um, what do you call it the flight the pole at the end of the stage, mm-hmm. you got to make sure you hit it just as the clock hits zero. So you know, the, right, right before you die, or actually, no, I think if you it hits zero, you don't get that chance. But it's like five or six hundred points is the minimum amount of points you can have to beat the game. So I just think it's interesting that you take a game like Super Mario Brothers that's been around for uh, you know a couple decades now and people are still trying to find new ways to play it. And but now here back back to these two games. Both of them had something that I thought was cool. Um they would have you, you you'd get the map or cuz like you could buy the map in Symphony of the Night from the librarian if you wanted i think it cost a hundred hundred dollars but for both of them there was stuff that wasn't on the maps that you could explore and try to find that a lot most of the time were completely hidden yeah and probably one of one item and i had to do a look on the internet to find out how to get this because it's when you're in the upside down castle and that's one of the other things that I do mm-hmm. like about the game. After you beat the first castle, then you find out, okay, there's another castle, except everything's upside down. So that adds, you know, new, of course that adds new challenges to the game. Yeah. The, but there's that... To even get to the upside down castle, you have to fight Richter the right way. And the, uh, it's, it's this one room, because you remember I was telling you about the, uh, the room where you go into where you know, in the couple rooms in where there's all those fishmen that are jumping out at you. Um, yeah. There's this, you have to get, I think it's like the barrel circuit. It's something that nullifies lightning damage or reduces it. And it's like, <laughs> there's that big rock where there's like a secret passage in there. And it's like, you mm-hmm. have to go through one end as a bat and then go back the other way as a wolf or something like that. Yes. Yes, you do. Who the hell figured that you- out? I have no idea, but if you don't have that burial circuit, cir- uh, circlet, when you go to the, you remember the catacombs, they were on the bottom in the normal castle, all the way on the very top on the upside down castle, the um, the big enemy in that one, I forgot the name of it. Ganoloth or I something like that, or yes, Gameron? He shot lightning, and it was impossible to dodge. I mean, he could kill you quick, but if you had the burial circuit, or circlet, I'm, I'm very, very sorry, he would shoot the lightning out of that wand thing he was holding, and it would heal you. Yep. So it made, yeah, definitely made beating the him a sucker move. Hey, if he's gonna throw huge amounts of damage at you, there's absolutely nothing wrong with finding a way to either minimize or heal back that damage. <laughs> That's one thing about Symphony of the Night. That game, if you did it right, you could munchkin the hell out of that thing. Yeah, and. uh I think it was Angry Video Game Nerd, but there was some YouTube review I was watching on it, and, you know, he was saying that. It's like, yeah, it's not exactly the hardest game out there in the series, especially once you know all the little tricks and trades and all that, you know, all the little ins and outs of it. 
But yeah, people still try to find new ways to play it. Like some people will try to do it while only, you know, without any weapons. So they're always going to be punching everything or they only use like the first sword that they find. So good luck with that. one. What's that? But, you know, most people, I said, good luck with that one. But then there are also people who camp out for the Curse of Grimm, which is arguably, ar- well, yeah, <laughs> arguably it is the greatest weapon in that game. Uh, I know there are some that do more damage, but that thing just turns oh, yeah. you into a flurry of death. Yeah. And then a little, and then you go up past the, the, the upside down library where you get that weapon. And there are these guys that you have to have beaten the game at least once to do this. There are these, they're called the Paranthropists or something like that. Yeah. There's three of them in this one room. And if, and if you camp out in there and just kill them over and over again, you will get something called the Ring of Varda. And it bumps your stats up huge. Yeah. Which you can, you can get two of them. I remember one time I beat the game. Um, I had, you know, two Rings of Varna and two Cursagriums. So, yeah, imagine yeah. that. Dual-wheeling Cursagriums. That would just be awesome. And um, the thing about the Ring of Varna, because they stole, you know, there's a lot of, um, obviously, there's a lot of mythology hidden in the game. Oh, yeah. Because I know uh, they've got um, a couple of swords taken from Norse mythology. Like, there's the one Tearfing, which is, uh, you know, it's like, really it's not a very good sword and that's because in Norse mythology it was cursed and I know Graham is another sword they take from there um yeah but yeah you're right they they do draw upon mythology they have the ring of Ares yep the ring of Arda is based upon actually something within uh Tolkien folklore yeah but yeah I had and a- you'll figure that out it's described as the golden ring to rule them all yeah, because when I, I remember one playthrough I was doing, I was dual-wielding Chrysagriums, and I had two rings of Varna on, and when I got, when I fought Shaft, I, I mean, I beat him so quickly, it's like, if you blinked, you would have missed it. <laughs> yep. So, yeah. You, it does, it makes the game ridiculously easy, even even Dracula but, doesn't doesn't stand a chance. But even though it's not necessarily one of the toughest games, I think one of the things that always brings me back even if it's not really as challenging the music and yeah this is something that i the castlevania series at least in my opinion most of the games have always had a very strong musical soundtrack and i think uh, symphony of the night really shows that because it's got such a versatile soundtrack to it mm-hmm. and um i'm just gonna throw this out here uh but if you have places in your in your local area where they sell um, Japanese import CDs, it's usually the kind of place that specializes in uh, in 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 anime that's kind of hard to find. Uh, they did make a Symphony of the Night soundtrack CD. Yeah, and it is also available on iTunes as well. I know, I know oh, that. Yep. Cool. D- then do it that way. It's probably cheaper. <laughs> yes, probably, <laughs> but I think. I paid 20 bucks for the CD. I got a Gen Con back in 2000, 2001. And again, because it's got, it's got, you know, rock metal type pieces. It's got, you know, some softer, gentler pieces. Like one of my favorites, I can't, I don't remember the name of it. I think it's a, 
not lost painting, like Crystal Raindrop or something. It's the one that plays in the Forbidden Library. Um, then the, you know, and then it also has, okay. the, yeah. then it also has the one that plays in the arena. That's more of a jazzy, uh, piece. So just a phenomenal soundtrack. I mean, but, but, <laughs> but I'm just going to say this for the record. By the time you finish this game, there's one of the tracks. It's called the final Takata. Oh, you will hate, you will hate it. It's not a bad song. It's a, it's a very good piece of music, but they overused it. Like 60% of the Upside Down Castle has this song playing in the background with another 30% um, using a different one. These two songs, it's just over and over and over. Yeah, I agree with you. That is probably my the weakest song on the soundtrack, in my opinion. And again, it's just because it gets overused. And I think it's also not as exciting and it doesn't invoke the same mood as a lot of the other uh, music mm-hmm. pieces in the game it is more of just kind of this monotonous oh is it over yet and then you go into a new a new area and it just starts over and just that that beginning crescendo of, of music that it, it, it that it starts with and you just hear son of a when we talk about sound, though, and this is actually one of the things that Symphony of the Night um, gets the most criticism for, and that was the voice acting, which... <laughs> I knew you were going to mention that. See, and the thing is, I didn't think the voice acting for most of it was that bad. I wasn't much for the succubus, but I know the guy who gets a bit of heat. Uh, I think his name was Robert Belgrave. Uh, he's yeah. the one that you know, that did Alucard in this one. And Dracula, in the name of my mother, I will de- defeat you again. See, and that guy. Yeah. And, I mean, I guess maybe his, maybe his voice just didn't fit the character portrait as much because I mean, he has this more deeper, you know, more, a bit of a husky voice. And mm-hmm. it doesn't quite fit well, I think, with Al- with the how Alucard is pictured there being more of this refined, elegant, statuesque uh, person. So I don't know if that's one of the reasons many people didn't like it, because uh, I think we do have to. I mean, we do have to consider that there's a difference between how you say something and what you're forced to say, because if you've got a really bad, badly written dialogue. Not even like Morgan Freeman is going to be able to make it sound good. That's where my actual complaint was. Um, first off, the PSP version, they completely redid translation and the voices. Some of them are better. I, I like the Maria in the PSP version better. The version of Richter in that game is just awful. And I'm not, I, I like the voice for Alucard in the original. The problem is, is the translations were not done well. Yeah, and that's, see, the thing is, you think by 97 they would have gotten past the whole English. Because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we understand that a lot of the earlier games, like, you know, especially some of the earlier NES games, uh, like Ghostbusters is a good example you get to the yeah. the last thing and it's like congratulation um 
you know, rest, you fought a hard battle, rest well, our heroes. And another good example is pro wrestling, you know, a winner is you where, Mm -hmm. and now I've never, I don't speak Japanese, so I don't know what it's like to try to translate Japanese to English. But from what I've heard, uh, part of it has to do with the sounds like L and R, I guess, are like almost exactly the same. Um, And then it's... It's just also a lot of the grammatical rules as well that sometimes you can't follow, you know, the same rules in in, Jap- in Japanese as you do in English. Some of it was also the just blatant, you know, it's, they they had American actors doing the voice acting for for the North American port. Why didn't somebody say at that time? Um, and I I think the one that stands out the most for me, and the one that just kind of cringes me the most is at the very end after you defeat Dracula. And he goes, uh, sarcasm. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's irony. <laughs> Why didn't somebody say, you, did you mean irony? I think that's what I should say. Yeah. Well, you know, the voice actors, they were paid to say it, not to write it. So definitely a very fun game, even though it might not necessarily be the most challenging game. But again, great soundtrack. A lot of fun to play, very atmospheric design. So this leads us into the discussion of the influence that Symphony of Night had on the rest of the series. Because you look at a lot of the games that came out after Symphony of the Night, like Circle of the Moon, Area of Sorrow, um, see Dawn of Sorrow, uh, Portrait of Ruin, um, Order of Ecclesia, uh, see harmony of despair. Well, that was that's a little different, but uh, those they they it led to this whole Metvania trend where a lot of the games that were released after Symphony of the Night followed the same pattern. Where yeah, the blank of the blank. Yeah, where you had well, not just the naming conventions, but where it followed the same thing, where you had this you know this open world type feel, which. And I think there are some pros and some cons to this whole Metvania style of gameplay. What do you think some of the pros and cons are? Um, I think the idea of of that open open side scrolling world, I like that better than you know World One, World Two, World Three, World Four. Uh, I think it it gives you a, a chance to explore more. You don't get forced into oh I fell down a hole I are dead. Mm-hmm. Oh, in 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 Symphony of the Night as an example, you drop down into a hole and you actually were somewhere else. Yep. Um, I, see Castlevania always except for Symphony of the Night had one major flaw for me for the series every every castlevania game i've played except for that one the controls were just slow and and just a real pain you know what i mean like alucard you hit the button he moved fast like that's i think that's one of my biggest things is that it was not reactive for the original castlevania so you'd hit the button thinking okay you know what i mean and in any other game 
you'd kill the thing in front of you. But with this one, it takes him like a second before he takes out his whip and because of that, you're dead. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely one of the improvements that uh, they make and why, I, you know, playing Richter is a lot more challenging than Alucard is that Alucard just feels a lot more fluid where Richter feels like a tank. Yeah, and that's kind of... That was that was the way the games always were before then. That didn't happen in in the Metroid series. But what they did do was added different ways that you could shoot. Like in Super Metroid, you got the thing where all of a sudden um, you could do a charge of your of your of your weapon. Yeah, and that's one of the things which I like so much about the the Metvania style of play is it does force you to backtrack and try to find new ways to explore. And again, I mentioned this before, how early in the game you, you come in this area and there's that hole in the wall, in the ceiling. Um, also, again, mm-hmm. a couple rooms later, um, there is a doorway on the other side of a gap, but it's too long for you to jump through. And, you know, also you, if you, once you get to the the alchemy lab, you know, you start making your way up that long, um, hallway, and okay, if you take a detour and go towards the chapel, there's a glowing blue door. So it makes you think, okay, well, I get later in the game, I found this item, now I got to go back and I can now start accessing other areas. Now, yeah, I know that... It, it, Super Metroid, it did that too, where you would have to go literally all the way through, back to your ship, and then swing all the way back to Norfair because you finally got this particular weapon that lets you to open up certain things. Yeah, and one of the complaints that I have people, I hear people say about that is some of it just doesn't make sense uh, if you try to take a look at it realistically. It's like, okay, let's say that there is a chest in the attic that you want to open, but it requires two keys. Well, where's, you know, where's the first key? Well, the first key is in the basement, but... Uh, in order to get into the basement, you have to get another key. And where is that key? That key is on the roof for some reason. And in order to get to the roof, well, you have to first find an item that lets you break through the door so you can get out to the, you know, out, outside the house. And you have to find the item that lets you double jump so you can jump up onto the shed and then jump up onto the roof. And then, you know, so, yeah, it's like you're running and all over of- the place. A lot of that started with, like, Maniac Mansion and Monkey Island, though. Yeah, and one friend of mine was saying he he hated it how they would do that in Resident Evil-type games. It's like, why do I have to find a key? I've got a rocket launcher. (laughs) But... Because it's a challenge. See, and... I know some the the main one of the complaints that I hear fans of the series say is that they felt that the Metvania style of play just it's like they weren't trying to put any new they weren't trying to do any new ideas in the game, which that I have to disagree with. Because have you played any of the portable ones for like the Game Boy Advance or the Nintendo DS? See, no, because one of the things I like about some of those games is. Because I played a few of them, I've played Circle of the Moon, I've played Harmony of Dissidents, I've played both of the Sorrow games. Even though they follow that same Castleroid type feel, they have different game mechanics. Like one of the things I liked about Dawn of Sorrow and Area of Sorrow 
is you've got the main character in there. This time isn't he's not a Belmont, but his name is Soma. And he has an ability called Dominion. Um, I think that's what it's called, where when you kill an enemy, sometimes you steal its soul. And that lets you get uh, powers from that enemy. For example, if you get the skeleton soul, it lets you throw a bone. Uh, some enemies, you steal, you get their soul power and you get stronger, or you get more hit points. And the one for the DS actually kicked things up a bit because in order to defeat certain enemies, you had to draw a seal on the touch screen. Now, it was a neat idea, but it could get be kind of a pain in the ass because when that boss was almost dead, you had to quickly grab your stylus and then draw, you know, draw whatever symbol on the the touch screen so you could finally beat it. Hmm. But all in all, I did enjoy those games because not only did they experiment with different types of mechanics, but they also did the same thing that they did with Symphony of the Night where they gave you alternate ways to play. Um, I mentioned before, like with uh, Harmony of Dissonance, in Area of Sorrow, um, you meet up with uh, the one of the last remaining Belmonts, uh, Julius. So, and this game does, like Symphony in the Night, it does have multiple endings, where uh, the games are so, see, Soma is supposed to be the reincarnation of Dracula. And there's a certain point in the game where, depending on what you do, he either becomes the Dark Lord, or he resists and he can go on and complete the game. So if he becomes the Dark Lord, it unlocks Julius mode, where now you got to go through the game as Julius Belmont to try to defeat Soma. You know, a, a lot of that stuff wasn't in, in Super Metroid, but what it did, I'm just going to throw this out here, you knew just based upon the previous games what you had to do. Because you remember the original Metroid had a, a similar feel. Um, it's just that that you didn't have save states and everybody hated passwords. Yeah, that was Definitely one thing that was them. nice about Super Metroid and Castlevania and the Castleroid type games is how you can save in different parts of the castle, so it's not like you have to do a, input a password and then you know you mm-hmm. have more control over where you're going to start when you resume play. Virtual uh, console on the 3DS and the DS fixes that for Metroid, where you can just. Uh, um, tap on the touch screen and save state. Anyway, the, it gives you a little bit of information and then it throws you for a loop. For example, you see you, you see kind of here's the basic map and here's this big room and then right below it is where you're expecting Ridley to be. And you're thinking, okay, so I just got to get into this big room and then I'm going to go right down to Ridley and I'm going to finally kill him off. And they troll you by having another 20 minutes, <laughs> 20 minutes of of exploration to get to Ridley <laughs> still because it's not uh, it's not a quick trip, even though it looks like it. You got to go all the way around. Then you have this room where like it's a giant room where all of a sudden it just fills with lava really quick. It is really hard to get to Ridley. So when you finally get to him. You feel like you've accomplished something, and you go in there, and you're like, he's going to be like he was in the first Metroid game. He wasn't difficult, and then he completely screws you because <laughs> he's tough in the game. So, well, 
I think we've uh, I think we've just about talked this subject to uh, death for now. Any last thoughts about Metroid? So uh, about the Met? I'm sorry. Any last thoughts about Symphony of the Night or uh, the whole Metvania style of play? Uh, both of these games are probably in my top five of all time. I I I, I do put Super Metroid above Symphony of the Night, but not by much. Yeah, yeah, they're. Both definitely good games, and oh, I highly recommend it. And uh, one thing I'd like to mention before we end here, um, the guy who uh, who was like one of the head producers on Symphony of the Night, and I'm probably going to mispronounce his name here, but Koji Igarashi, uh, usually he's just credited as Iga, he has been, for several years, he's been working on a game called Bloodstained, Ritual of the Night. And it's going to have a very similar feel to Symphony of the Night. But one thing he's doing, which I think is actually pretty cool of him, is he's bringing back some of the voice actors who were in Symphony of the Night. Um, like, for example, I know uh, Robert Belgrade, who did Alucard, he's going to be uh, in that. He's going to have a role in that game. And I think he's bringing back the person who did... Uh, who, who did um, uh, Maria, but I know he is trying to get back some of those original voice actors for mm-hmm. this game, which of course it can't be Castlevania because he's not doing it under Konami, but it's still going to be uh, in, in this, it's going to be in the, the same vein. And I think this summer they're actually going to be releasing an, a spin off game to it, or like a prequel that's going to be done in a retro 8 to 16 bit style. So that looks like that looks like a lot of fun, and I think it's going to be released for like Xbox One, PlayStation Four, the Switch, and I think a couple of the portable systems as well. Okay, I will say this: um, Super Metroid is worth the price of a of a of a SNES Classic for those of you who don't have a, a Super Nintendo. It's worth it. Plus, you get. You get Final Fantasy 2, you get Final Fantasy 3, I think Breath of Fire's on there, uh, Chrono Trigger. Uh, Chrono Trigger I don't think is on uh, the SNES Classic. No, I, no, it's not. I thought it was. Uh, Secret of Mana know. is. But anyways. Yeah, that game was over. Yeah, or even if you don't want to get a SNES Classic, uh, if you've got still got a Wii or a, or a Wii U lying around, you can get it on the virtual console there for like 8 bucks. Or a 3D, the new version. Okay. So, Dan... If people want to find you stealing men's souls and making them your slaves, where can they find you? Uh, uh, I'd prefer to do that with the ladies. <laughs> but if you'd like to hear my, my other show, you could go to uh, my show. You could go to RadioFreeBorderlands.Libson.com. And if you wish to pay me tribute and finding me finding me being the savior that mankind ill needs, you can find me at poigamestudio.podbean.com or, uh, of course, you can look up Point of Insanity Game Studio and Point of Insanity Network on Facebook and also follow us on Twitter. So, with that said, I'd like to thank you for joining us and have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are. And please, try not to be a miserable little pile of secrets. Hey, the last Metroid is in captivity.
and the galaxy is at peace. Awesome. Good night, everybody. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at poigamestudio. Do you do a podcast about Dungeons and Dragons, role-playing games, video games, or other topics of geek interest? Would you like to cross-promote your podcast on geekery in general? Then drop us a line on our Facebook page at POI Game Studio or POI Network, or contact us through our website at POIGamestudio.com, and we'll set something up. Die, monster. You don't belong in this world. It was not by my hand that I'm once again given flesh. And I was called here by humans who wish to pay me tribute. Tribute? You steal men's souls and make them your slaves. Perhaps the same could be said of all religions. Your words are as empty as your soul. Mankind ill needs a savior such as you. What is a man? A miserable little pile of secrets. The same could be said of all religions. Your words are as empty as your soul. Mankind ill needs a savior such as you. What is a man? A miserable little pile of secrets. But enough talk. How about you? Die, monster. You don't belong in this world. It was not my mind that I once again given flesh. I was called here by humans who wished to pay me tribute. Tribute. You steal men's souls and make them your slaves. Perhaps the monster. You don't belong in this world. It was not by my hand that I'm once again given flesh. I was called here by humans who wish to pay me tribute. Tribute. You steal men's souls and make them your slaves. Perhaps the same could be said of all religions. Your words are as empty as your soul. Oh, it's a pile of secrets.